iconographical representations of trees were often associated with deities and with kings, which made me go, okay, so what's happening here? What, what's, the, what's the connection and all of these other cultures? And then when I then turned to Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, it's like, oh, the prophets seem to be doing something very similar. Is it, do we see the tree of life in other places in the ancient world? Uh, you certainly see um, kind of this idea of a cosmic tree. To imagine what it's like to walk into a dark temple that is lined with gold all the way around, and it's only lit by candlelight. It's like you've stepped into this illuminated, you know, gold flashing garden where God meets you. Hey everyone, this is What Your Pastor Didn't Tell You. Today I am on with Dr. William Osborne. We're going to be talking about trees in the Bible, a very fascinating and probably a topic you haven't heard about. So, how are you doing today, Dr. Osborne? Hey, doing great, Zach. I'm happy to be with you. Awesome. This is great. Okay, so can you give us just a general background about yourself, education, what you're working on right now, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, I'd be happy to. Um, so just to clear it up for, for you, feel free to call me Rusty. And I go by Rusty Osborne to most everybody in my life, but my published works are under uh, William R. Um, but I am a professor at College of the Ozarks, which is a Christian school in southwest Missouri, and have been here for 11 years. Uh, getting ready to get cranked up for another semester teaching uh, biblical studies uh, for undergrads. I continue to do some work with Midwestern Seminary, uh, do some dissertation reading and um, work with them. Uh, I uh, did my seminary training through Southern Seminary in Louisville and then uh, the PhD um, at Midwestern in Old Testament where I actually started the uh, path down tree imagery and really i guess it was about 2011 came across uh, an article that i was reading that just simply had a footnote about um, tree imagery in ezekiel that just captured my attention i was kind of reading around the prophets at that time and um, just started kind of working my way down the rabbit hole which was kind of trees in the bible tree imagery in the ancient world uh, that inevitably led to uh, my my dissertation and the publication of the, the book that we'll, we'll kind of refer to a little bit later. Um, but since then, have continued to to work in the prophets um, and Ezekiel for a, a significant amount of time, Isaiah, Jeremiah. Um, I'm presently doing a pretty big project on Jeremiah, working on the Pillar Old Testament commentary. Um, mm -hmm that's in the process of, of coming out and I'll be working through Jeremiah for several years as it's a very large book. Um, have a, a, a fun book coming out in the fall that I co um, edited with Paul Wagner at Gateway Seminary and Andy Abernathy at Wheaton College uh, called um, The Prophets and the Apostolic Witness, reading Isaiah, Jeremiah and Ezekiel as Christian scripture. And that'll be out this November through IVP. Um, and then I've, I've got actually a, a children's book through Crossway that just came out this past summer. So I, I kind of have projects all over the place. Um, 
and some of them are true related some of them are in journals some of them you know are, are coming out in, in different publishers but oftentimes i'm working um in the profits uh that's, that's kind of where a lot of my interests lie and um so yeah that's kind of a little bit of of where i am uh what i'm working on where i've i've, I've come through um that has, you know, kind of brought me to this place where I'm, I'm or I should say, I guess also I am um, co-editing a book that's coming out um, called A Planting of the Lord uh, that I'm co-editing with Mark Boda and contributing to, which is going to be examining tree imagery in natural and human contexts. That'll be published by uh, TNT Clark Bloomsbury, hopefully in the next couple of years. We're collecting essays and, you know, kind of uh, getting that that volume together. So uh, there's always kind of something tree related going on in the background, it seems like. <laughs> That's awesome. Okay, yes. Yeah, this is a an extremely just fascinating topic because, like, so I, I'd say that you know I've interviewed a ton of scholars. You know, I'm a, I'm a master's in theology student, but at the same time, like, this is just almost completely new. But at the same time, it's like, how did I miss this? Because the idea of trees is just like almost in every chapter of the Bible, or or uh, or you know, not chapter, but book of the Bible. It's like kind of crazy how much it's used. So. Uh, to, for those that are new to this, can you give us just some examples or, you know, whatever topics that you, that stand out to you as far as topics of trees where that make you think, oh, wow, you know, this idea of trees is extremely significant to the, to the writers of the Bible? Yeah. Um, so, I mean, I think one of the first things that I had to think through and that anyone has to think through when you're kind of approaching a topic or kind of a theme in the Bible is you have to ask yourself the question, is there something significant here to this reference to tree imagery or to a tree? Or is this literally just a passing narrative reference to a tree? Mm -hmm. Right. And I do think that I always wanted to be careful and, and continue to want to be careful in doing research to not um, kind of grab this interesting idea of, you know, certain metaphorical associations with the tree and then read those into every single tree that pops up throughout mm. the old. Right. And I think methodologically, that's a problem. And I never and I, and I would not want people to be like, oh, well, in these passages, the tree <laughs> symbolizes this. So therefore, yeah. every reference to a tree is now somehow, you know, spiritually or symbolically pointing to that. That's not the case. I think that there are plenty of instances in the Old Testament, especially and, you know, in the new where where a tree is a tree. And it, mm. you know, has some type of narrative function uh, as a setting or backdrop or things like that. Now, that being said, um, I think that one of the things that this research has pushed me in, and we, you and I were, were talking about uh, my relationship with Mike Heiser, and one of the things that, that Mike really brought to the fore in his research was exposing the fact that as Westerners, we tend to read the scriptures with a very different worldview, right? The, the, the ancient world did not have this strict bifurcation between the spiritual and the natural like we do. So at the outset, we're tempted to be like, well, is it just a tree or is it something else? Well, that's a very modern way of looking at the world. 
Is it just this or is there more to it? I think very much in, in other cultures uh, that have, you know, that are not so much post enlightenment driven and certainly in the ancient world, the, the, the blend between the natural world and the divine was much more seamless than we are tempted to see it. Now, that being said, I, I certainly don't want to say, oh, well, trees are gods in the Old Testament, or that's, you know, how the Old Testament is talking about trees in this divine way. Um, I don't think that's necessarily the case. But I do think that there is a much closer tie between specific locations, between certain trees and divine visitations, uh, certain endowments with uh, kind of spiritual significance that the ancient, the ancient world was deeply in tune to that we just simply aren't because of the modern mind. We have this really strong kind of division between the natural world and the supernatural world, right? I mean, is it just a tree or is it something else? I think that's a very modern question to ask of an ancient text um, where they would very much see all nature likely pointing to something beyond itself in some capacity. Um, so, so I think if we're going to read the Old Testament scriptures uh, with the worldview of the biblical authors, which is in tune to uh, a divine inhabited world, then that opens our eyes to see these significant natural markers, which oftentimes are associated with trees, as specific places where people intersect with that divine realm or intersect with God in a meaningful way. And this tree becomes commemorative, right? It becomes this kind of place where we met God or this place where God is present with us, not in a way that makes the tree an idol, but in a way that makes this tree religiously significant for God's people because of what took place there. Not in a way that's dissimilar when the people cross through the Jordan and then, you know, erect a little statue of stones to then tell people what happened in this place. Right? Um, so I think that throughout the Bible, it's not that every tree is, is significant and symbolic, but there are certainly places where uh, groves, individual trees are referenced um, in ways that seem to point us to the fact that something significant happened there. Uh, and oftentimes that significance is associated with divine presence, that God was present with his people. God was interacting with his people in this place um, in a way that piqued my interest uh, and goes, that, that's really interesting. Now, to anyone who's familiar with the Bible, right? I mean, the, the first tree of significance is, you know, the tale of two trees that we encounter in Genesis, which, you know, we can talk about a little bit later. But I think that's really kind of where we start to see uh, the, the biblical narrative take off. And, and I don't want to say that the whole, the whole Bible isn't about trees. It isn't. But for whatever reason, the biblical writers seem quite taken with the significance of trees and their function in the natural world and the way that they kind of span this gap with the supernatural world that plays a, an important role in how they want to talk about what God's doing in and through his people. Yeah, that's really crazy. Okay, so that kind of brings us into a big topic of your book. So Trees and Kings, uh, mm. what can you just go over just a general summary of like what you were doing in the book and yeah. what what your conclusions were, all that? 
Yeah, absolutely. So Trees and Kings um, was basically a, a, a research project exploring uh, specifically the prophetic tradition or the major prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel. And as I was working through these books, realizing that, man, there, there really is a lot of tree imagery in Isaiah and asking myself the question, like, what are these prophetic texts doing with tree imagery? Like, what, what's, why might the author be differing this image to talk about kingship or uh, to describe what God is doing? And as I got into that, part of the way that I wanted to um, answer that, that question of what are the prophets doing with tree imagery uh, drove me to what's called a comparative study. So I wanted to ask, well, you know, Israel doesn't exist in a vacuum. The traditions, the, the, the patterns of communication, the, the style of communication that we see in the Old Testament is not divorced from what we see outside the Old Testament. It's not to say that it's the exact same, but certainly I, I felt like it was a worthy uh, investment of time to say, okay, well, if I'm going to answer the question, what's Isaiah doing with tree imagery? Why don't I think about well, what were they doing with tree imagery in ancient Egypt? What do we see when we look at tree imagery, both in text and iconography in ancient Egypt? And what do we see in tree imagery in ancient Mesopotamia, you know, Babylon or Sumer? And what are they doing? Are there certain tropes? Are there certain stylistic things that reoccur in Mesopotamia? And then let's, let's look at the Levant. Let's look at the region of Canaan, both in biblical text and outside in the material culture, uh, and just see how are trees functioning culturally in the world around these prophetic books and see if that can provide some insight to answering the question, what are the prophets doing? And as I explored some of that, that data, as I began to explore, okay, what's tree imagery look like in ancient Egypt and Mesopotamia and in the Levant outside of, of Israel, I started to see this pattern that oftentimes tree imagery, both in iconography, that is visual representations, like either through, uh, um, you know, uh, uh, drawings on pottery or reliefs on walls or, you know, some type of visual representation, um, iconographical representations of trees were often associated with deities and with kings. Which made me go, okay. So what's happening here? How, what, what's the what's the connection with the the king and the tree in Egypt, the king and the tree in uh, Mesopotamia, the king and the tree in in, in the Hittite culture or in Canaanite culture? And um, there started to emerge this association of this relationship between the king, the patron deity, and the people in the land that this tree became a very apt uh, vehicle to communicate that image in all of these other cultures. And then when I then turned to Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, it was like, oh, the prophets seem to be doing something very similar. Again, sometimes that similarity provides them the opportunity to turn the, the religious traditions of these other cultures on their head. So please don't, don't, don't hear me saying like, oh, well, the prophets are just doing what they're doing in Mesopotamia. I actually think that Ezekiel is taking uh, this notion of Yahweh as the divine kingmaker 
in his oracles against the nations, right? The, the king of Tyre and this, this one, uh, the, the one who's in the garden, this tree among the cedars. I actually think Ezekiel's taking up the language associated with Mesopotamians as this um, God as the divine kingmaker and turning it on its head and basically bringing an indictment against these so-called uh, magisterial kings of Mesopotamia. So, so it's not as though the similarity is just a wholesale taking in. Sometimes that similarity allows them the ability to polemically bring charge against these foreign kings. But as I looked at Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, I started to see that same type of association that the king, which was being depicted by a tree or sitting next to a tree or in Egypt superimposed on the image of a tree, the king was this individual that spanned the gap between the people and the deity who would oversee um, the, the well-being of the land and kind of had this coherent structure uh, that, that certainly made sense to what we were I was seeing play out in these prophetic books as well. And so my book, Trees and Kings, is, is kind of looking at that comparative information from Egypt, Mesopotamia, and Canaanite culture. Then looking at that and looking at texts in Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, and, and coming to the conclusion that the biblical prophets are using this same type of the tree is a king kind of conceptual metaphor to talk about what God is doing through Israel's kings, how they're going to be chopped down and as a means of judgment, how they're going to uh, the, the new shoot that will grow up as, as God's new king that's coming up. Uh, the branches that extend out are the symbols of their reign and their rule and the, the shadow that they cast over people. All of these kind of metaphorical associations uh, you can kind of find in other places in, in the ancient Near East. And so the prophets, I think, I mean, I, I argue this in my book, I, it almost seems like if you look at Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, if you want to pick their preferred kind of metaphor or symbol for talking about kingship, it seems to be tree imagery, whether it's a tree that extends to the heavens, whether it's a tree that's going to be chopped down, whether it's a tree with branches that cover all of the birds of the air, um, whether it's a new new uh, dynasty that's coming up out of a chopped down uh, uh, trunk, right? I mean, there's all of these various images, but they're all rooted in this one basic metaphorical concept the king is a tree or a tree is is a king. And then those different um, extended metaphors kind of branch out, no pun intended, from that one basic concept. Very cool. Okay. So I don't know what notes you had for this question, but uh, could you possibly talk about uh, one or two or as many as, many, as, many as you want, uh, just examples in the biblical texts of like specific mentions of trees? So you did kind of a bit of Ezekiel. Maybe we can choose that topic or another one where we can dive a little deeper, like more specific onto the verses. Yeah. Does that sound okay? Yeah. Um, so some important passages, I think, that that are quite interesting in thinking about uh, tree imagery. I mean, like I, I alluded to earlier uh, in our discussion, I mean, one of the first places that's significant in thinking about tree imagery is, is the garden story of, of Genesis 3, right? We have these two trees and, you know, theologians can uh, spend a, a lot more podcast time talking about, you know, what's going on. Why did God put trees there if he knew they were going to um, 
uh, partake and all that kind of stuff. And I, I leave that to, to others to, to hash out. I think what's interesting for us is to say, like, interesting, you know, there's these trees, this tree of life. Um, is it, do we see the tree of life in other places in the ancient world? Uh, you certainly see um, kind of this idea of a cosmic tree. Scholars are, are divided over whether or not there is a kind of uh, a tree of life in the, the biblical kind of picture. If you see that in other uh, cultures, you, you encounter the language tree of life in some Egyptian texts. Um, but the biblical picture of the tree of life does seem to be rather unique. I mean, you get the plants of plant of life or water of life, you know, so there's, there's other types of connotations. So kind of as far as the function goes of the tree of life, you do encounter that in, in some other cultures, but there is a distinctive element in the biblical story. And if we kind of look at what the, the function is of the tree of life is in the, the Genesis story, it, it seems like this plant or this tree is a life-giving source to the human beings that God has put in the garden, right? So that I think if we, if we look at when God removes Adam and Eve from the garden, the text tells us that he, he put, you know, the, the angelic being there to keep them from going back lest they partake of the tree of life. And so it seems as though their access to this tree was part of what tied in their immortal life-giving aspect. You know, their 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 kind of immortality or their life in the presence of God was tied to proximity to this tree. Now that you know that can raise a lot of questions. It's like, okay, well, was there you know eating of the tree what was making them live forever in God's presence? I'm, I'm open to that, frankly. I don't think the narrative precludes that. And I think if you actually let that play out through the biblical story, when we start later on in Revelation and in the prophets getting these references to uh, a tree whose, whose leaves were healing for the nations, right? There's this, there's this idea that there's this tree that's going to bring healing, that's going to prevent death, that's going to prevent sickness, mm. um, that's going to promote life in this sacred place in God's presence. Right. So I think in Genesis three, we, we have this beginning image of this tree that promotes life, that sustains life, um, that is tied to Yahweh's presence with his people in his garden. Right. And that garden becomes paradigmatic for so much of what, how we come to understand God's presence later on in the Bible. So that if we were to kind of like step forward in the biblical story and we think about, well, uh, the tree imagery associated with the tabernacle. Many see kind of tree of life connections with the menorah um, and kind of the, the tree imagery there as God meets with his people in the holy of holies of the tabernacle. But that really, really comes to the fore when Solomon begins building his temple in first Kings. And we have all kinds of tree imagery, right? From the pillars where you walk in uh, to the temple, the, the, the carvings all around the temple, it was like entering into a garden just completely covered in gold. Um, and so there was all kinds of fruit and garden imagery and all kinds of tree imagery so that to go into Solomon's temple was like entering into the garden where you could meet with Yahweh. And that was framed by these two pillars, these two trees, right? So here we've got the garden and the tail of two trees. And now we've got a temple that you enter by walking through these two stylized 
tree pillars to go into God's presence. Um, right. So, so I think you see these ideas just kind of recapitulated uh, throughout the biblical story. Now, you know, there's there's other passages that seem to be uh, significant for thinking about tree imagery. I think specifically about the Abimelech story in Judges where you get the fable of the trees where uh, we get this bramble and there's talking trees and where the kings are trying to decide who the or excuse me, the, the elders uh, are trying to decide who's going to be the next king. So isn't that fascinating, right? That here we've got this this uh, Judges six story of Abimelech. There's a discussion about kingship, and all of a sudden now all of the characters in the story are talking trees. Uh, they're they're different talking um, species: a bramble, a cedar. You know, all of these different t- types of of tree species, and so that kind of uh, uh, has a significant role to play there. Um, if we kind of move forward, like I was just saying, I think Isaiah is a pretty significant book, and a lot of people recognize the significance of tree imagery in Isaiah because of uh, so many of our thoughts about Isaiah are shaped by passages like, uh, you know, the stump of the stump of Jesse, right? That this 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 new Davidic king is going to come up like a shoot out um, from the stump of Jesse. Well, I mean, that in of itself is an interesting image, right? That that Israel's kingship is portrayed as a stump. Why? Well, because it was a it was once this dynastic tree that's been chopped down in judgment. But the hope of God's people is that a new shoot is going to come up out of this stump. And it's interesting, I think, that the stump is not the stump of David. Right? It's not, it's not that. There's this new new vegetative shoot that's going to come out of the stump of David. It's there's this new growth that's going to come out of the stump of Jesse. And so I think the symbolism there is that this new growth is going to be a new David. That just as Jesse is the, you know, the the father of David, the the stump is taken down to the nub and this new David is going to spring up who is going to rule God's people and is going to uh, be this unassuming leader that is going to grow into greatness. The similar kind of imagery emerges in Ezekiel 17. Ezekiel tells this parable about um, a, a, the top of a cedar being carried off to Babylon, likely referring uh, to uh, Josiah, who was taken away to Babylon. But then in this kind of um, eschatological vision in verses 22 through 24, God says he's going to bring this shoot back and plant it on the mountain heights of Israel, and it's going to grow into this massive tree and whose branches are going to extend out, and all of the animals of the field will find shade under it, right? So this picture of uh, this new, this this little shoot that's going to grow into this massive tree, all tied to reigning, a king reigning on the mountain heights of Israel. Right. I mean, it's extremely, I think, messianic in overtones. Um, another another kind of uh, picture of that same type of kind of cosmic tree is picked up in Daniel chapter four with Nebuchadnezzar's uh, dream of becoming this tree that grows up and and provides shade and, and sustenance to all the animals of the field. But it's chopped down because of its arrogance, because of its hubris. It's brought down to the ground. 
Um, so I think those are some of the passages where we just see these, you know, kind of some of the major passages where we see tree imagery emerge as an interpretive crux to kind of make sense of what's going on. Very fascinating. All right. So you mentioned the the temple of Solomon with the two trees you walk in. Are you have, I mean, obviously you have two trees in the Garden of Eden, but you don't think those are like symbolic of those two trees. No, I don't. I don't think that. I don't think that those two pillars represent those two mm -hmm. trees per se. But you know, it is interesting that we do have these two massive pillars that are stylized mm -hmm. trees that you walk through into uh, this temple gathering, or you know, this place where you can, or where the priest can meet mm -hmm. with, with Yahweh. So mm -hmm. no, I, I wouldn't make a you know a one to one correspondence. The one on the left, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and <laughs> one on the right, the tree of life. Uh, yeah. But it is very much a a garden scene with these massive tree structures just right at the mm -hmm. forefront that you walk past on your way into this uh, you know mystical illuminated place that is like an otherworldly garden, right? I mean, just it, it, sometimes I'm like. I, to imagine what it's like to walk into a dark temple that is lined with gold all mm. the way around and it's only lit by candlelight. It's like you've stepped into this illuminated, you know, gold flashing garden where God meets you and where you can um, interact with the divine. So I, I just think that's it's just a fascinating image of how the the garden and tree imagery specifically reemerges in a place of prominence in Israel's worship uh, during the time of the kings. Yeah, yeah, that's really cool. I have considered the idea of the tree of life being something like the menorah, like some, but somehow the menorah symbolizes the tree of life, but at the same time, it's like, well, you, you know. There isn't like a one-to-one -one correspondence, although the tree of the menorah definitely is portrayed as like some type of plant tree. Yeah. So it makes sense. Like, do you see any specific significance in the menorah, or do you also think it's like the columns? You know, the menorah is is tough. I mean, a lot of scholars will draw associations with the menorah and the tree of life. It's not ex it's it's not explicitly clear to yeah. us, you know, how the menorah aligns with the tree of life um most representations of the menorah we, we think of as some kind of stylized tree and we do see in mesopotamia um some kind of stylization of trees that would be somewhat similar to the menorah but it, it's certainly not identical you know um and so it's it's difficult i i I find it to be difficult to to tease out exactly what connection the menorah has to the tree of life um, in that um, you know in in that specific context. It's it seems like it's somehow related just based on the stylization and its shape. But as far as the function within worship, um, mm -hmm. you know, unless you want to unless we want to posit some you know a life light kind of connection there. Um, it's it's not easy to exactly see how that plays out. Yeah, well, the 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 temple had multiple menorah, so of course the tabernacle had one. But it seemed if the temple had more than one, then it it makes a lot more sense combined with the idea that the columns were also portrayed as just normal trees, yeah. 
that maybe they're it's just symbolizing you know just the, the atmosphere rather than one specific tree that's yeah i i'm i mean i'm i'm open to that yeah i i do think that it's you know i mean i've read um lots of, of contemplations about the relationship between the <laughs> and the tree of life. Yeah. It, it's, it doesn't, there's no, I have a hard time finding the explicit kind of one-to-one connection. Right. There's, this is this in this context. Mm. I see, I see the temple um, design as more kind of reflecting the, the re-entry into the garden presence of Yahweh, not necessarily in just kind of those one-to-one uh, mm kind of correspondences interesting interesting okay all right a little side tangent there okay so let's talk about uh, the significance of trees in egypt this is a very fascinating topic can you get into that yeah so um egypt is a fascinating culture you know i mean it's a it's a really interesting um culture just kind of ethnically um the material remains are fascinating but also the geography of Egypt, I find to be quite fascinating, uh, especially in the ancient world. Um, in Egypt, I mean, everything was really kind of like tied to the Nile, right? And I mean, it's still kind of like that. I mean, you have this riparian zone on either side of the Nile and everything's lush and green. And once you get beyond the reach of the, the Nile's ability to kind of move out through root systems, like it's just desert, right? So, I mean, you have this really stark picture of life and death even in the geography of egypt where you can be walking down a sand dune and look down along the the banks of the nile and it looks like a jungle right it's lush it's green it is the epitome of life while you're just kind of trudging through the sands of egypt to get there and so i think that there's this there's very much this kind of starkness of the the land of egypt that that kind of shows you like Death is in this place and life is in this place. And um, certainly tree imagery, uh, you know, fruit imagery, all of these things were a sign of life um, in the, the ancient Egyptian world. But so much of what we know about kind of Reg- Egyptian culture is tied to both the, the reign of the king, both in this life and in the afterlife. Right. So we, we have all kinds of kind of connections with tree imagery associated with the, the the resuscitation of kings or trees that kind of enable kings to go into the afterlife. Um, Osiris, one of the gods of ancient Egypt, is frequently portrayed um, as kind of superimposed over a tree. Um, there are various gods kind of associated with, God, with, with trees at different points. One goddess, uh, Newt, is associated with kind of a sycamore tree. And so uh, Sometimes e- Egyptians uh, um, stylized gods and trees in, in different ways. So in some images, you can find a tree and then you find a human being just like kind of placed on top of it. In other images, you can find a tree that actually has human body parts. So there, there are some images from the Book of the Dead where you've got this tree with arms coming out of it to bestow you know, blessings on uh, the faithful traveler to the afterlife. Or there are images of this tree with, you know, uh, we're all adults here, I hope, uh, this tree with with a breast where this individual is suckling and finding nourishment, right? This symbolism of protection and care of motherly kindness with, like, connected to this tree. So the the stylizing and kind of heteromorphic um, juncture 
of things in, in ancient Egypt is always fascinating in the way that they want to connect the divine to these trees that they associate with that. Um, one fascinating aspect of tree imagery in ancient Egypt was this, this the incorporation of this Ishid tree um, in, in kingship. And so in several places, in Karnak and some of these other places, uh, a king is superimposed over the tree and the deity is displayed as writing the name of the king on the leaves of this tree. And the deity writing the name of the king on the leaves of this tree was a symbol of the ongoing eternal nature of this king's reign. So the king is very much imposed on the tree and the deity is writing his name on the leaves to kind of uh, divinely um, you know, show his favor and to support that king and his reign in those ways. Um, so, so oftentimes in Egypt, the, the tree is associated with kind of resuscitation, helping the traveler through the afterlife, um, associated with the king and his proper reign and the extension of his reign in the world um, and, and some of those ideas. Hmm. Really interesting. Okay. So what about the significance of trees in the rest of ancient Mesopotamia? Yeah. So tree imagery um, is, is found, I mean, in ancient Sumer, which is one of the, which is the earliest kind of Babylonian culture, the, the, the people there um, in the region of Babylon. I mean, we see references uh, to kings that associate themselves with trees. Uh, one ancient king, Shulgi, in the third century BC, you know, talks about himself as a great palm tree uh, that has grown up. And so oftentimes um, the king's connection with tree has to do with height, um, and height is tied to prominence and, and power and those types of things. Um, they're, they're the, the shadow cast by trees is often taken up as a, as a metaphor to talk about the extension and reign of a king. So for a king to be a great tree whose shadow is cast over the land is this picture of authority, right, of protection, like we were talking about with Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, so you see some of those um, images very much present in um, Babylonian and Assyrian um, material. Now, by the time we get to kind of Assyrian culture, and especially the Assyrian culture that's kind of around the time of Isaiah um, and some of the writing prophets of Israel, there's this very prominent image of a stylized palm tree that is present in some of the palaces of the Assyrian kings, where you have this kind of stylized tree uh, that lines the, the throne room, um, and you have these kind of winged genies. And most people believe they're kind of holding this date palm and they're, they're, they're fertilizing this tree. Um, and, and then we have in the throne room this picture of the king flanked by these stylized palm trees in a way that seems to be connecting the king of Assyria to these types of trees, right? To this, this stylized palm, this date palm tree uh, that has undoubted iconographical significance. I mean, it, it's a big deal. Now, I mean, we're there's still a little bit of debate. People are like, well, what's the big deal? What's the association? It seems like from the reliefs that we can read and from the, the iconography that the connection there is that the king is actually being associated with that tree. Um, I think there's been some good research also that shows that that tree is kind of believed to have this kind of apotropaic power the, the tree is seen as a, as a, as a 
a means of warding off evil, of keeping sickness at bay, of keeping evil at bay, maybe not that dissimilar than what we're thinking about with this tree of life in the garden, right? I mean, this, this tree that has this ability to sustain life and to keep bad things from happening. Um, and so that imagery emerges and is quite prevalent um, in, in the, the Neo-Assyrian period that we think of around uh, the prophets. We also see tree imagery around Canaan, um, outside of Israel's religion. Um, so probably the most common that we're used to hearing about is the idea of this Asherah pole, right? If you've ever read Judges or, you know, Joshua or any of these other, uh, the, the book of the Kings talking about the uh, worship, the, the Baals and the Asherah, right? What is this Asherah pole? It's it, Most believe that there was either a living tree that was stylized or, you know, some type of pole that was a stylized tree that was, you know, as Jeremiah says, on every high hill and under every green tree there you played the harlot, right? That there was this kind of Canaanite religion that was associated with this kind of pillar and tree uh, that somehow were tied to the divine realm of the Canaanite pantheon um, that became something of a um, an idolatrous addiction in ancient Israel. They could not get enough of Baal and, and his Asherah um, in those high places that emerged. So we know that was also a significant application of kind of like the, the sacred tree or the tree as this commemorative place of meeting the divine uh, that had a big role to play in ancient Israel. Hmm. That, that's out there. Very, very good stuff. Okay. Uh, you briefly mentioned the tree of life and uh, I think in Proverbs and Psalms. Yeah. So is that the same concept we see in, in Genesis 3 or is there any difference there? Yeah, so Proverbs actually makes uh, four references to the tree of life. And, and by the time, you know, kind of chronologically speaking, by the time we get to Proverbs, um, the tree of life in Proverbs has, has very much taken up this idea of a, a symbol of life is life-giving, right? So um, a mouth that's under control is, is life-giving, uh, right? I mean, wisdom is life-giving. So I think those references in Proverbs are very much kind of, I, I believe, drawing on the biblical garden narrative as seeing the, the tree of life as this source of life that God has intended for his people and, and unsurprisingly, tying that to wisdom, right? And, and, and I mean, anyone familiar with wisdom literature knows that, that there's a strong connection between creation and, and wisdom. It's by wisdom that God created the world. So we shouldn't be surprised when we see uh, nature imagery woven into wisdom texts. And, and in fact, I think that one of the things I have taken away from my study on tree imagery is that I it's really made me more attuned to finding nature imagery in wisdom texts and and in kind of some of these passages that we typically associate with wisdom they're very much kind of grounded in this earthy spirituality that's dealing with the natural world and drawing uh, from those texts and and frankly uh, Genesis 3 could very much be associated as a sapiential text uh, once uh, um, uh, met a, a guy doing a, a PhD, I think, in Birmingham and, and looking at Genesis 3 kind of through this sapiential literature kind of comparative study that I, I sounded very interesting. 
to me. And I think you certainly see some wisdom elements in that story. Um, and so I think in Proverbs, Proverbs is, is building on that Genesis 3 narrative and is, is kind of using that image to talk about that just as the tree of life was life to God's people in the way that he created, wisdom is life to God's people when we live according to that pattern, the way that he created. So I think that's kind of what Proverbs tends to be doing with those tree of life references. Now, when you get to the Psalms, I mean, the Psalms don't necessarily talk about the tree of life, but the Psalms will talk about um, tree imagery that, that a person is like a tree, right? I mean, we think classically Psalm 1 that um, the, the one who meditates on the law of the Lord is like a tree planted by streams of water, right? Whose leaves do not grow, uh, who do not um, fade, right? So, I mean, Psalms will, will very much kind of take this image of a living tree and present that as what it's like to live in, in, in be blessed by, by God, um, that, that tree image becomes a picture of faithful worship. That tree image becomes a picture of righteous living, right? Of the, the picture of fecundity, of life, of fruitfulness. All of those things are bound up in the individual who is in God's temple, who's rooted in the nourishing waters of Yahweh, right? I think that's typically how, how Psalms kind of draws that tree imagery in to portray it as a faithful worshiper. Awesome. Okay. So you you talked a good amount about Genesis 3. Is there anything else you wanted to add? I wanted to make sure I didn't miss anything. No, I mean, I, you know, I think Genesis Genesis 3 is fascinating. And I mean, any Genesis 3 discussion in some ways, I think, has to uh, take into account Ezekiel 47. Um, and if you jump over to Ezekiel 47, Ezekiel is, is on his temple vision. Um, and he um, is being shown the temple, and he sees this stream of water coming out from beneath the throne of the Lord, and it turns into a river, and on both sides of the river, you have these, these trees whose leaves are healing for the nations, right? So Ezekiel, when he has sees this restored heavenly vision of the temple, what does it look like? It's a river with these trees lining the side of the river whose leaves are healing for the nations, right? And then immediately... Um, if you're familiar with Revelation, we jump over to, you know, Revelation at the end of Revelation, where we have this similar type of garden city with a river flowing down the middle of it. And the tree of life is there um, in some form, multiple forms or, you know, singular, plural. Uh, but there's these trees there whose leaves are healing for the nations. Uh, right. So I, I think that you see that imagery kind of woven through um, the, these key moments of the tavern, or especially the temple, but then the restored temple in Ezekiel's vision. And then what I would say is the fulfillment of the temple in this new heavens and new earth temple city that has this garden with the river and trees with leaves healing the nations uh, in them again. Hmm. Yeah, interesting. I, I've rarely ever see Isaiah or Ezekiel 47 mentioned in this context. That's that's fascinating. Okay, so in the past, uh, specifically, I think it was on your podcast with Dr. Michael Heiser, you talked about the, the, the temple being made of wood, and it's like a special wood. Is there a significance you see to that? Well, the temple, so... 
you know, it's, it's interesting when Solomon decides to build his temple, um, he, it, the text tells us that he builds it out of cedars. So, I mean, if you want to talk about one of the most significant trees um, in the Old Testament, I mean, I guess after the tree of life, really cedar trees would, would be some of the most significant. Um, cedar trees were geographically located to the north of um, ancient Israel. So kind of like in the um, Lebanese mountains, uh, which is kind of north of what we think of as modern day Israel. And uh, cedar trees were extremely desirous for many reasons. One, they were enormous. They were huge. And if you wanted to make a huge palace, you needed huge trees to make huge lumber to make a huge palace. And these palaces were massive. I, I was um, I was in the Louvre uh, a few years ago and um, remember seeing the capital to one of the pillars that would have been in, in Darius's palace, uh, the Persian King Darius. And it was this large bull carved kind of bull capital that would have sat on top of this massive pillar, you know, in his throne room. And the, the size of this thing was, was huge. I mean, it was this huge capital. And then, you know, the, the nice little informative chart next to us said, showed like this was one of like a hundred and my mind was just blown because all of a sudden I just had this perspective for the magnitude of this ancient palace like it was massive and if you're going to build an impressive massive throne room that's going to dwarf all of your you know dignitaries who come to visit you and you want you know if you're S or Haddon you want them to walk into your throne room and go oh my gosh this guy is the real deal. You need huge timber to do that. And so the Mesopotamian kings, um, Sennacherib, Esarhaddon, Ashurbanipal, they would all make these westward campaigns into the Lebanese mountains and chop down cedar trees and then float them down the Euphrates River to then do construction projects and build their palaces. So all of the great Assyrian kings, all of the great Mesopotamian kings were building cedar palaces. That's what you were doing because you could get big lumber and cedar lasts a long time, right? It has kind of these, has a, a natural ability to, to keep insects at bay. Um, it, it doesn't rot easily. So cedar was like this amazing building product. So all of the major kings of Mesopotamia are building palaces of cedar so, well, Solomon's not going to be outdone, apparently, by these Mesopotamian kings. So Solomon, too, creates this arrangement to go up to chop down the, the cedars of Lebanon, to bring them down and to build the temple of the Lord out of cedar. Um, but he also builds his own palace, which is called like the House of Cedars. It was so impressively uh, built by, uh, you know, all of these massive cedar trees. And so I think that there's an element of... You know, I, I find Solomon, the, the narrative of Solomon's reign is complex. Um, I think there's oftentimes kind of subtle foreshadowing about things that are happening. And we, we all know the end of Solomon's story, right? That he ends up kind of going the way of um, his foreign wives, worshiping other gods, uh, many of whom would have been seen as Mesopotamian deities. And I think it's it's interesting that perhaps what we're seeing in the narrative of Solomon is is already an eye to the foreign nations going, well, what does their palace look like? 
Well, what do their building processes look like? Well, how do I make my palace look like their palace, right? How do I use these same types of resources and bring them into Jerusalem and, and make this palace of grandeur uh, for myself? I think perhaps there's there's something going on there narratively that tips us off. It's like, yeah, I don't know if I don't know if that's that's the best thing if we want to like replicate a Mesopotamian palace, uh, you know, for the for the king in Jerusalem. And you know, by the time um, Ahaz comes along in Isaiah a couple of hundred years later, I mean, Ahaz has no problem. Ahaz is just like, oh man, I saw this Assyrian altar in a temple. Um, when I went up to meet Tiglath Pileser III, I have to have, we have to have one of those in Jerusalem. And he just straight up brings the Assyrian uh, altar back in and shoves it in the temple in Jerusalem. So I, I think that you start to see this kind of highway of exchange of ideas moving from the nations into Jerusalem that goes all the way back to, to Solomon and gradually generation after generation works its way out as the nations unfortunately come into uh, the kings of Israel in a way that will be their demise. Hmm. Hmm. Interesting. So what specifically about a tree do you think would make people conclude, hey, like, I don't know, they see it some type of healing or some type of divine nature or kingly nature. So like, I think of, you know, the chaos waters. That's, mm. that's obvious yeah. because you have, you know, to an ancient person out on the water, on the sea, yeah. that's chaos. That's almost like close to death, you yeah. know, craziness all around. But a tree, like, why would that ever be associated with healing yeah. or, or help me understand? Yeah. That. Yeah. I mean, I think it's a, I think it's a, a fascinating question. And, and again, I, I do think it kind of comes back to a little bit of what I said earlier about just, um, I think as, as modern readers of the Bible, for, for most of us in America, if you are you know, watching this video on YouTube, uh, there is a great chance that you are what I would call a displaced human. And what I mean by that is that we have so removed ourselves from the world in which we live that we don't see the natural world as transcendent or, or awe-inspiring uh, or necessary, right? Um, uh, I was recently thinking about this, working on an article for this uh, new new volume that's um, coming out, uh, A Planting of the Lord. So I, I live in the Midwest. I live in Southwest Missouri, and I frequently drive across Kansas on the way to Colorado trying to, to seek cooler temperatures in the summer. Um, and as our family heads across Kansas, which is very flat, I'm always struck by um, you'll, you'll drive for miles and not see any trees. And then you'll see a house. You'll see like a little uh, homestead, a farm, a house, a barn. And around it will literally be like a, a square of planted cedar trees or planted trees that are put there to protect the house from, I mean, incredible crosswinds, 60, 70 mile an hour, you know, straight winds just blowing across the prairie. And it, and it hit me, you know, as I see that, I'm like, wow, these people living in this house, their livelihood, their home, their family is dependent upon these rows of trees to literally protect them from the harsh elements in which they live. Like those trees aren't there. Their barn gets blown across the street. It's toast, right? I mean, like 
like there's a there's a dependence on the the tree in that situation that struck me and I'm like I bet that's what it was like for much of the ancient world it wasn't just you know I'm going to plant this tree because I really like this and it looks nice which there's a place for gardens we can talk about that and looking at king's gardens but for many people the tree it had a literal function right it was shelter it was sustenance it was it, it represented my livelihood so the prophets come along and say what's restored israel look like it looks like everybody's sitting under their own fig tree right everybody's got their own source of food everybody's got their own security right so that the tree became associated with those ideas of of security of protection of sustenance that if a tree can grow here and it's producing fruit, we're not going to die, right? But trees also have this majestic quality to them, and especially the cedars of Lebanon. I mean, they're massive, hundreds of feet tall, and these enormous trunks. I mean, like if, if you've ever been in the presence of the giant redwoods or any of these massive trees, I mean, they're just jaw-dropping, right? I mean, there really is this sense in which you go, this is otherworldly. And it's very easy to see how in a world where the natural and the divine coexist, to look at this massive, otherworldly living thing, it just screams something significant's going on here. Hmm. And I think that there's an element of that. That's what drew people to the Lebanon mountains. You know, some scholars believe that the Garden of Eden was kind of associated with this kind of mountain of the Lord language that could have been up in the, the, Lebanese, the, the Lebanese mountain range. Um, that, I, I don't know about that, but I do know that whether you're a Mesopotamian king or whether you're a Judean king, everybody's wanting to go up into these mountains because they just symbolize power, wealth, there's resources, there's trees to build, there's animals to eat. I mean, that was where life, uh, you know, kind of existed uh, in the ancient world. So I think in that context, that's one of the reasons why you see such um, significance kind of in, bestowed on these trees. Uh, the height of the cedars of Lebanon uh, became paradigmatic for royal hubris. So there's no better picture of an arrogant king than this king tree cedar whose top extends to the clouds and thinks that he's better than everybody else. And that becomes very much the way the prophets want to depict these arrogant, you know, foreign kings. Now, if you look at, you know, some other places, though, in, in Egypt or, say, the southern Levant, the tree would have been more closely connected to a source of water. Right. So when we start thinking about, well, how do we get this tree of life? What's the connection to the tree of life or water of life? Well, if you're in a desert region and you have a natural spring, you're going to have trees. There's going to be this little oasis. Uh, anyone who's listening to this that's ever been to Israel, there's a, a famous little valley called Engedi right next to the Dead Sea. And so you've got the Dead Sea, which is this stark desert landscape. And then in Engedi, you have this spring of water. It's a, it's a natural spring that just comes out of this little valley, and it runs down uh, toward the Dead Sea. And it's, it's desert everywhere. And then you have this little lush jungle that just exists, right? This little oasis of water that runs right out of the desert rock. And, I mean, you look at that, and you're like, oh, well, that's, that's where the water of life image comes from. That's where the tree of life image comes from because it's it's dry desert everywhere else and literally it's green, lush, 
water that you can live by. And in fact, I mean, most scholars believe in Getty is the, the location where David was hiding in the desert uh, uh, when he was running from Saul and some of those stories. Uh, so, I mean, you see kind of that stark image of, of life and uh, death in the desert and then what, what the water brings and trees, groves would have existed around those springs. So I think in that sense, you can kind of see some of the the, the natural connotations between um, kind of the tree of life and then we've got these majestic kind of trees as this mm -hmm. kind of divine space uh, up in the mountains and, and some of those different kind of natural ways of thinking. Now, as I say that, I'm not trying to kind of like provide some naturalistic explanation as to why these trees are significant. I mean, so like when I read the scriptures, I'm going like, well, they're significant because the scriptures tell us they're significant. And there seems to be some type of divine association that commemorates them. I think that um, reminding ourselves of these geographical realizations helps us connect to a people who were deeply emplaced or deeply connected to the world in which they lived in a way that we're not today. So for me, this is an exercise in us trying to read the Bible the way the ancients would have read the Bible in a, in a world that was divinely infused, in a world that saw God's fingerprints all over it, and in a world that saw that closely tied to the way that these trees are kind of uh, functioning geographically, culturally, and um, even stylistically at times. That's awesome. Very good stuff. Okay. Uh, last question for you. When we're talking about, all right, how did they conclude this? Uh, you, you might be hinting at it, but you also mentioned it before that, you know, you think the ancients saw, they didn't see things like just supernatural and then maybe some natural over here or something like that. Like, like almost combined is that how you describe it or maybe like there's additional meaning in everything do you think how would you describe that yeah i mean i think that there i mean we're that that venturing into to something akin to you know kind of metaphysics or you know kind of thinking about the changing metaphysic from the ancient world to the modern world and that is what is real right what is real <laughs> um and i think that that's really a question kind of of meta metaphysics of kind of thinking of what, what was real in the ancient world and what, what do we perceive as real today? Um, and I think in the ancient world and in many, many other cultures around the world, there, there isn't that stark difference. There's, there's no kind of boundary between what they think of as quote natural and then supernatural that, that the two kind of blur together. Um, now, I think where this pushes us is that, you know, whether we like it or not, if you're, you know, living on the continent of North America, you have been shaped by a worldview, a, a perception of reality, a social imaginary, whatever term you want to use, that tells you that what's really real is the material stuff in front of you. And what's perhaps less real is the spiritual world that everybody likes to talk about. And I think for us, we're constantly having to tell ourselves as Christians today, even, you know, we will go, okay, like, uh, yes, the spiritual world is real. The spiritual world is real. The spiritual world is real. And, and I, I don't think that the ancient world had that struggle. Like, in fact, I mean, in, in many ways, the ancient world struggled to affirm the reality of the physical. 
right? I mean, that's the whole Gnostic struggle of the early church. It's to, to actually diminish the value of what's physical, of, of what's present, of what's in nature, and to give greater value or greater perceive greater reality in the spiritual realm. Um, now, I'm not saying that's that's the metaphysical solution. I'm just showing how far the ancients would go in differing with us in the way that we think about the natural world as it relates to the divine world. Now, biblically speaking, I mean, I, I think if you're going to take the Bible seriously at all, you have to affirm the existence of supernatural realities, the existence of God, God's activity in the world, God's ability to, to move and act and do things in the world in which we live. And I think that in the Old Testament that we start to see these, these key moments of divine interaction among God's people um, that are associated with these specific places. And oftentimes those places are marked out by, you know, certain trees or certain, you know, kind of places that seem to have some kind of religious significance. Um, as Israel moves into the land of Canaan, it seems like they're kind of wanting to borrow some of these religiously significant sites from Canaanite worship and say, well, we actually worship Yahweh and we're going to worship Yahweh here, whether it's a, a grove of trees or a high place or something like that, which, which can later become a problem in the history of Israel and their syncretism when they want to worship Yahweh and Baal and Asherah and El and all of these other kind of deities uh, alongside Yahweh, that becomes a problem. But but I do think that, um, you know, I don't know that I'm prepared to say, you know, that the palm of Deborah in Judges chapter four is a supernatural palm. Uh, you know, it's like he's J Deborah, the prophetess Deborah sitting under the palm of Deborah and interacting with people. And it's, you know, the palms somehow spiritually involved in this prophetic I don't, I don't know that I'm ready to go there, but I do find it interesting that Deborah, a prophetess, has her palm. And, you know, there's this tree that people are connecting with her, this person who has this divine connection to Yahweh and who speaks to us in the name of Yahweh, right? This prophet that is connected to this tree in this, this specific place. Uh, I don't think that's coincidental, right? And I think that in some ways those, those trees were seen as either connected to this sacred spot where God meets us or to this individual, uh, the Abraham's planting of the Tamarisk, right? I mean, we have these kind of moments uh, where God seems to to reveal himself that are connected in those ways. Hmm. Okay, I lied. Uh, one more question. Uh, <laughs> what made you conclude that the maybe the biblical writers or even just the people in the ancient Near East had this this view that's kind of different than ours. Um, obviously, you talked about the Gnostics, but is there anything specifically in the texts or how they wrote? Or I know I know you have like Egyptian cosmology where you have like the gods as you yeah. know everything around us. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, you know. I guess I would say. I mean, well, I will say this. And one of the I think one of the voices that has contributed to this a great deal is Michael Heiser. In his book, The Divine Realm, I think was was a pretty important book to kind of show people, you know, in evangelical Christianity, you have all these weird texts, right? Like Genesis <laughs> 6 and the Nephilim and you got the Watchers and you got all these, you know, there were all these kind of weird texts. And I think what Mike did was say, like, 
these are weird to us. But if you actually adopt the worldview of the biblical writers and readers, they're not weird. You can actually connect dots between these so-called weird passages to begin to understand this perspective of a divine realm of, you know, this kind of um, divine counsel, this, 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 the, the, pro what are the prophets given access? They're given this kind of access into the divine counsel. They're, they're given access to see what's going on in this divine realm that exists, that is, that, that has real life effects in the world in which they live like that is the prophet right the prophet isn't just you know getting a, a text like hey let everybody know that it's going to rain next week the prophet is having the curtain pulled back on the divine council to see god's timing to see god's work in the world to see what he's doing throughout uh, the cosmos and throughout history that makes you go okay if that's real then that changes everything Right. If the prophetic vision of the divine is real, then all of a sudden what, you know, the, the, the Western metaphysic, uh, you know, post Kant, it, it, like it doesn't hold up. It doesn't hold up. It does not account for what the Bible would say is really real, which includes all of the created world in which God created. But certainly the 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 realm of the divine that is active and significant in the world in which we live. Hmm. Yeah, it's really, really cool stuff. Awesome. And way to, way to tie, tie Heiser in there. That's awesome stuff. <laughs> all right. Thank you so much for coming on. You, you answered all my questions. And this is just a really great topic. I'm, I'm so excited to, for people to hear all about this. Can you give people, uh, where can people access your previous work? Yeah. Is there anything that you want people to know about for something you're doing in the future? Yeah. Um, so the book that I, I referenced and I think others have, have interacted with is called Trees and Kings. Um, I actually had the forethought to bring one home. <laughs> so uh, it looks like it looks like this. It's on Amazon. It was published by Penn State University Press, um, Bulletin of Biblical Research. Um, it's got a really nasty dissertation subtitle, A Comparative Analysis of Tree Imagery in Israel's Prophetic Tradition in the Ancient Near East. Um, you know, it, it got me a degree. That's what I was worried about. But this is the, the book that I was referring to earlier. Um, another book that just came out that I had a hand in, um, in and uh, I've, I've enjoyed working through. It's called The Tree of Life, um, edited by Douglas Estes. And this is actually in the Themes and Biblical Narrative uh, series published by Brill. Um, probably a little expensive, but um, if you can check it out from a library, it, it works. It walks through looking at the tree of life in different stages. Uh, so there's an interesting article on the tree of life in ancient Near Eastern literature and Near Eastern iconography, the tree of life in Genesis. I wrote on the tree of life in Proverbs and Psalms, and then it goes on to look at um, Enoch literature, John's apocalypse, early Christian literature, Gnostic literature. So if, if the tree of life conceptually is of interest to you, this is a, this is a pretty fascinating um, book that, that's been put together here within, I think it was 2020 was published. Uh, so, you know, kind of tree imagery stuff that's, that's uh, out there. 
I wish the the volume of planting of the Lord was was going to be out sooner, but it's probably a couple of years before hitting the press. Mm. But I think it's going to be a pretty interesting volume as well, uh, looking at some different aspects of tree imagery um, in the Old Testament, especially. Um, as far as me personally, uh, the the book on Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel's Christian Scripture is coming out um, in November. Um, I'm trying to think of other projects that might be in the works. I think, I think those are, those are it. That's the, those are the, the big things that um, are available. I, I also, I will say I have um, a book that I did for Crossway on divine blessing um, called um, divine blessing. Uh, let's see, what is it? Divine blessing in the fullness of life in the presence of God in the short studies of biblical theology that kind of walks from Genesis to revelation, looking at what it means to experience God's blessing that in, in many ways kind of spun off, of some of my uh, tree research, because I mean, a lot of some of the associations with tree imagery have to do with what does it mean to be blessed by God, right? As I mentioned in Psalm one, um, blessed is the one who right, meditates on the law of the Lord. It's like a tree planted by streams of water. And so there are certainly some tree passages that connect with that idea of what does it mean for us to live in uh, the, to experience the fullness of life in God's presence. I do think there's a connection with with tree imagery and that idea of divine blessing that I unpack in that book. Yeah, awesome. Everyone go check that out. It's all all sounds great. And I've, I've read a good amount of that. So awesome stuff. All right. Uh, thank you so much for coming on here. This has been a ton of ton of fun. Uh, I hope you have a great rest of your night. Yeah, thanks, Zach. I appreciate it. Yes, of course. All right. Yeah, that went really well. Uh, awesome stuff. Thanks, sir. Thank you so much for doing this. Um,